In the Gospel of John, this is an exciting time as we begin the Gospel of John and then this evening begin the, go- the Gospel, actually, of Deuteronomy. It is kind of an Old Testament Gospel. Um, <clears throat> we see the Gospel in every part of Scripture. That was a misspeak, but I guess it's right. Um, so the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John's purpose in writing the Gospel, if you remember, is stated later in the book. He says that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote all that he wrote. He even said, there's so much that Jesus did that I couldn't write down, that if I had written it all down, there wouldn't be enough books to fill it all, to hold it all. So these first 18 verses of the Gospel of John are called the prologue, the prologue. And in this prologue, John just makes a powerful point straight up front that Jesus is God. He's eternal like the Father, verses 1 through 5, we saw that. He's eternal like the Father. He's the agent of creation. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He also calls Jesus the Word, again and again, to hammer home the truth that God sent a revelation to man to open our eyes, to understand God. And this was the Word, this was Jesus, is a personal revelation of himself. Not only does Jesus speak God's words, which he says that he does, but Jesus is the message. When someone asks you about the gospel, what is the gospel? How do you explain the gospel? Don't be intimidated. You need to just start talking about Jesus. He and his work, his person and his work, that's the gospel. Well, we're going to read the first 18 verses again. Uh, I won't finish um, the prologue this week. It will be the next time I preach, um, God willing. But I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. This is God's holy word. Would you please stand this last time? This is the inspired word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, 
who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Amen. Please be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let us pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, we come to you as those who acknowledge that often our eyes are unable to see clearly. Our hearts are hard. Our ears are stopped. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, would unstop our ears, would soften our hearts, that we might hear your word, that we might accept it and receive it and apply it in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus is the powerful and conquering light. This is the title, the powerful and conquering light. I'm going to make four points. We'll see that the witness of the light was John. We are all called to be witnesses as well. The truth of the light, the rejection of the light, and the children of the light. The witness, the truth, the rejection, and the children of the light. John the Baptist, not the Apostle John, but John the Baptist was sent as a witness to the light, a witness of the light. He was sent ahead of the king to herald the coming of the king. I remember when our base hosted a four-star general. It's the same when our base hosted an ambassador, a United States ambassador. Before the ambassador, or before the four-star general came, a few days before, there would be this lowly person, this little lieutenant or this little captain, who would have a team of a few people, and they would set everything right before the arrival of the dignitary, making sure that not only did this person have everything he needed, he had the right room, he had the right computer access, he even had the right kind of soft drinks in the refrigerator, every detail was considered. But also that the audience, that the base was ready to receive this person, that they understood just how important he was, that this person was coming on behalf of the President of the United States. They were witnesses of the coming of that dignitary. In much the same way, John the Baptist came as a witness of the king, the king who was coming. Remember, when John came, From Malachi until John, it was 400 years of silence. Prophetic silence for 400 years. And then John showed up. John showed up and proclaimed the coming king. He knew exactly who Jesus was. He knew exactly what his mission was. God had sent his angelic army to sing at the birth of his Messiah proclaiming the coming of the Messiah to the world. And then God sent John as a minister, as a prophet, to declare the coming of Jesus' ministry on the earth, the beginning of his early earthly ministry, to prepare the way. This is important, and it's important enough for the gospel writer to mention John the Baptist by name. And that's verse 6, the witness that God had sent. There was a man sent from God, whose name is John. Now in this particular prologue, this is an abrupt change. It's an abrupt change from talking about the word 
everything about the word, the glory of the word, the divinity of the word, the, the eternal nature of the word, Jesus. And all of a sudden it's, it stops and it changes to John. And he says, this is about John. I'm going to tell you a little bit about John. He was a man sent from God. His name was John. There's also a change, not only in the subject, but in the verbs that are used. The word was, the word was, the word was, talking about God, the word, Jesus, forever having existed. There was never a time when he was not. And now we read that John was sent. John came. Jesus was eternal, but the man John was sent at a particular time. Jesus was always God. And yet John was sent in space and in time to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry on earth. John, the final Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament prophet, was the link between the Old and the New Covenants, much like Jesus, the link between the Old and the New Covenants. Not two different covenants, but a new covenant that perfectly fulfills the intent and purpose of the Old Covenant. There's one thing about Reformed theology that is so special is we see that this book is one united message. It's one united promise from God that he will make a certain number of people, his own people. He will be their God and they will be his people. This book is about that. You see the redemptive plan of God in some way on every single page. It's not divided up into a number of different good tries. It's always the eternal word of God with one covenant plan to redeem his own people. And John was part of that in heralding the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus talks about the importance of the apostle, sorry, of the prophet John. Often I think because, and rightly so, when we see John the Baptist right next to Jesus throughout the Gospels, we rightly kind of think of John as less than maybe the other prophets or something because Jesus is so much more important. But that's not what Jesus said at all. In Matthew 11, verse 9, he said, Who did you go to see? A prophet? This is Jesus talking. He said, Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say, he quotes Malachi, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So when we talk about John the Baptist, we need to realize what Jesus thinks about John the Baptist. There's no one born among women greater than John the Baptist. God gave him a pivotal role in the redemptive plan of God. And he died for that. Verse 7, we see the mission that God gave John the Baptist. The purpose of his arrival he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He came as a witness. This is legal courtroom terminology. Did you notice that? He came as a witness. 
to bear witness about the light, about the truth, to testify to the truth. And John loves this word, John the gospel writer loves this word witness, this this kind of proof, this proving that Jesus is the Messiah. John uses the word witness in the gospel of John 33 times. And the synoptics, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke parts of the gospel, they, they hardly use the word witness at all. But for John, this is a key point. He has, he's showing that God sent witnesses that were upright and true and told the truth to God's people to prove the case that Jesus is the Christ. And John the Baptist was the first witness to the light. Other witnesses, just briefly, that John mentions in this gospel, the Samaritan woman. Fascinating that the Samaritan woman would be listed as a witness. Talk about that later as we go through the gospel of John. The works of Jesus are a witness. The Father is a witness. The Holy Spirit is a witness. The Old Testament promises are a witness. The apostles are witnesses. And the purpose of all these witnesses, that all might believe through him. A.W. Pink says that this verse is, quote, solemn and pathetic and tragic. It struck me. Why would verse 7 be solemn and pathetic and tragic? Well, it's kind of what I told the children. When the sun is shining in all its beauty, who are the ones who are unconscious of the facts? Who are the ones that need to be told that the sun is shining? The blind. It's solemn because the light is shining brightly in the holiness of the person of Jesus Christ. It's pathetic because the world needs to be told that their Christ, their light has come. And it's tragic because it reflects the darkness of man's soul. Like we told the children, man's soul is dark apart from the light after the fall. So John was called to testify to the truth, to the light. It's still the case that the light shines in the darkness. And you are also called to bear witness. You're called to testify to the truth. Each one of you. I hope you take this seriously. Some people say, well, I just bear witness by living a good life for Jesus. Okay, that's maybe part of it. But you actually have to open your mouth to testify. You have to talk about Jesus. There are those who are afraid to do so. In effect, they deny Jesus. That's a scary place to be. If your faith is only a private faith, then the odds are it's a false faith. Those who have the light in themselves cannot help but bear witness to the light. It emanates from their pores. Everything about them shines light. Yes, certainly we're sinners. And yes, we struggle with sin. But the light still shines through our lives. It shines through our words. The work is God's work. This is true. But you must open your mouth and talk about Jesus. You are being equipped for ministry by the elders, the teachers, the pastor at this church. You're equipped for ministry. That's what Paul said. And you are going to go out and do ministry. First to your own family. 
to your wife, to your husband, to your children, but also to your neighbors, also to your community. Like John, you need to go and bear witness to the light. But more directly, this is the task of every pastor. All ministers of the gospel are called to bear witness to the light in a special way. It's the aim and the goal of every preacher to to tell you, look to the light, look to Christ. Don't look to me, but look to Christ. When John Calvin was buried, he he knew in his lifetime that there were going to be people who would kind of reverence him much, much more than they should. So he instructed the church when he died to bury him secretly in an unmarked grave. He didn't want his burial site to become a, a shrine of any kind. He wanted to take no glory from the light at all. He shared John's opinion that he must decrease and Christ must increase. All true witnesses of the light want people not to look at them, but to Christ. That's why if your pastor is a mega pastor, a superstar, etc., etc., you should be a little concerned. All heralds of the king find their significance not in their own words, but in the words of the king. And this is what John said in verse 8. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John and all the prophets and priests and apostles of old and all modern preachers today are not the light. If your faith is in me, if your faith is in any pastor, any elder, they're going to fail you. Your faith is in the light, in Christ. The light of your elders, your pastors, is derived as the moon shines only because the sun is shining on it. They're not the lights themselves. Jesus called John, John the Baptist, a lamp in John 5.35. Well, that's different from a light, isn't it? A lamp has to have fuel put in it. And then it shines. So all ministers of the gospel have power from God alone. And all of God's instruments are different in many ways, but they have one overriding goal in the life, and that's to bear witness about the light that all might believe. So John the Baptist was the witness of the light. He teaches us that we are all, in a way, witnesses for Jesus Christ. The second point is that the light is true. It's a true light. Verse 9, it's the true light which gives light to everyone coming into the world. The true light, the Word, Jesus Christ, is the only genuine light. J.C. Ryle helpfully defines true in four ways regarding this verse. Number one, it's an undeceiving light. Remember, Satan is also called the angel of light, but everything Satan does is deceitful. All other religions in the world are deceptions. They're deceitful deceptions. It's not real light. Kids, you need to know that Christianity is the only true light. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. All of us need to remember that. There aren't multiple paths to the Father. There's only Jesus Christ. He's the undeceiving light. Secondly, the the light is the true light in the sense that it's the real light. 
as contrasted from the types and shadows of the Old Testament that pointed to him, the promises, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, the celebrations, all these things pointed to Christ. They weren't the light, but they were pointing to the light. So it's the real, the ultimate light. Thirdly, Ryle says it's the, it's the true light in the sense that it's underived. All lesser lights only reflect the glory of this true light. And fourthly, it's the super eminent light. Not ordinary, not common, not created, but the only true light. And it comes to everyone. This true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John's not teaching universalism. He's not saying that all people in the world are going to receive the light and be saved. We know that from what comes later in his gospel. But what is he saying? Well, two things I think are alluded to here. First, all men have life and light and are image bearers in a general sense. All men know that there is a creator and they are without excuse for their rebellion. But here John is saying that the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So he's making a statement not about creation and the creation context, but about the world as it exists. This light is coming into the world, the true light that gives life to everyone. This ultimate self-disclosure of God is coming from heaven to the world. Regardless of nation, tongue, status, wealth, this light is going to shine not just on Jews, but on everyone who are receiving. It's coming to the world. Gives light to everyone. He's the nexus of all of our faith, and now he's the nexus of the faith of many people all throughout the world. He shines light also on all men, whether they want to see him or not. But he is the objective truth, the only eternal divider of the race of men. We know from John chapter 3, expounding on this theme, John says, or Jesus says, that the light came into the darkness, but the darkness hated the light. Everyone in the world is divided just like that. Do you receive the light? Do you reject the light? There's no other dividing point in humanity. That's it. Do you receive or reject the light? Because he came into the world. And the world in this verse, verse 9, is not used in the sense of just the created order, the cosmos, but the way John uses the world the word world throughout his gospel and throughout the book of the Revelation is that the world represents the fallen and rebellious humanity that rejects God. That's the world. Jesus came as a light into the darkness of a fallen world that hates him. And he's the only true light. He's true. He's the only thing that's true. All right, the third point. There was a light who came into the world, but he was rejected. He was rejected. The light was rejected. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He was in the world. He's always been in the world in one sense. He created the world. By him, all things hold together, and all things consist. By him, all nations increase or decrease. By him, all people live and move and have their being. So in one sense, he's always been in the world. 
but in the plan of redemption. He actually came to the world at a time and a place. He was seen in many various ways in Israel before that time and place. Our confession tells us in chapter 8, number 6, that through the types and the sacrifices and the promises, we see shadows of Christ come coming. D.A. Carson says, The Word of God came in general terms to a fallen mankind earlier in law and prophecy and wisdom and deeds of deliverance and judgment and mercy and sheer brilliant theophany. Now the Word comes in personal self-disclosure. He came. He created the whole world that He loved and He came to it. But the world did not know Him. These words are also solemn and pathetic and tragic. The moral responsibility for this failure to recognize the king is not God's. It's not his fault. It's not even Satan's fault. It's the fault of humanity for rejecting their king when he came. They didn't know him. They hated the light, Jesus says in John 3. This is a a scandal. You should read these words and shudder. This is a scandal and it's a crime. And with each phrase, John seems to be piling on to show just how great this scandal is. Verse 11, he came to his own. This Greek word is something like property or things. His home. He came to his own home. We've had people watch our house before. They come and they house it for us and it's a wonderful blessing. Can you imagine after being gone for a couple weeks or a month, you come back and the doors are locked? The people in the house say, we don't know you. This is my home. You're not welcome here. Right? There's a conflict because you know you own it. You know it's yours. This is something like what John is saying here. He came to his own home, to his own things, his own possessions. This is his place. And he wasn't welcome. So if the first own in this sentence is more general, he came to his own as the owner of the universe. The second instance of this word actually refers to people. And his own people did not receive him. This is talking about the Jewish people, the chosen people, whose whole purpose was to shine the light of God, the promises of God. Pink says the world was charged with ignorance, but Israel with a positive refusal of him. His own people, the Jews. People of the covenant promises. Read Romans 11 and 12. How Paul grieves over the rejection of his own people of the Messiah. The Jews were called out of the world to shine the light of God from the time of Abraham set apart to be God's own possession. And then when Christ came, they did not receive him. The scandal grows even deeper. It increases. And it's finally completed, of course, on the cross. He came to his own home. And not only did they not receive him, they opened the window and they shot him right between the eyes. They killed him. Jesus talks about his rejection in the parable of the tenants, if you remember, in Matthew 21. 
God describes Israel as a vineyard that had a strong fence around it, a tower in the middle, if you remember that. And he builds this, plants this vineyard. And he entrusts the care of the vineyard to some tenants, to the Jews. Then the master goes away to a far country and he sends his slaves to check on the vineyard throughout time. These slaves are the prophets. One by one, they come on behalf of the master. And each one of the slaves is rejected by the tenants and mistreated and beat and killed and stoned. So the master decided to rather than send another slave on his behalf to send his only son. And the tenants conspired to kill the son and take the inheritance. Jesus told this parable to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, when Jesus asked them, what should be done to these wicked tenants? The Pharisees responded that these wicked tenants should be put to death. These, they said, put those wretches to a miserable death. They didn't see at first that he was talking about them. They were so spiritually blind. They did not see the parallel. And yet such was the reaction to Jesus, just as it was to all the prophets who were before him. Isaiah 65, verse 2 and 3. Isaiah sums it up for his ministry and God reaching out to his people. All day long I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face. Those horrible Jews. But actually this is about us too. Everywhere today, the light is proclaimed around the world, and still there is outright rejection. The primary issue is a rebellion stemming from an absolute blindness. The world will not bow the knee to that man, Jesus Christ, but rather loves the darkness. And it's a dark and tragic tale, a miserable and a hopeless tale. But it's not the end of the story. I have told you before, I'll say it again. I believe that there's a reason why all humans throughout the world love Savior stories. Whether it's Superman rescuing the woman tied up in the chair with the villains all around her. Showing up in the nick of time to bring salvation. Or a cowboy story. You have the, the daughter who's been kidnapped. The villains ride off with their masks on. Evil looks in their eyes. And the gunslinger shows up to rescue the woman, to bring her back home. There's something about us that loves these kinds of stories. Why is that? I believe it's very, very simple. We all understand our need at some very basic level that we are in rebellion against God. We're, we see God, as Romans 1 and 2 says, we see God and we reject him. And when we see salvation in some story, we're acknowledging the fact that that's what we need as well. 
There's a knowledge of God in every man. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that God's people are in distress all through history, not because the church is failing, not because the bride is faltering. The church is always in distress from Adam and Eve until the end because we have an enemy, Satan, who hates us. The church isn't in distress primarily for any other reason than Satan hates the bride of Christ. So there is a a sense in which all men see the light. They know there's a God. They know they're in rebellion against him. But there is a sense when they come to the light that they know that that redemption is the whole reason why they love salvation stories in our culture as well. So the story of redemption, which began on earth when the serpent deceived the woman, doesn't end with the rejection of the creator. If the Bible ended at Genesis 3, verse 7, what a horrible story that would be. If the Gospel of John ended with verse 11, what a horrible story that would be. That everywhere Jesus came, he was rejected. But that's not the end of the story. In God's covenant of grace, God intervenes and preserves for himself his own people, his own family, his own children. And he will never be without a witness. God never will. So God provided a witness in John the Baptist. He sent the true light in his son. His son was rejected. And finally, God provided for himself his own children out of this great morass of rebellion. To all who did receive him, verse 12, who who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You see, God ensures that his own promises will be fulfilled. He promised Eve that her seed would crush the head of the serpent. He promised Abraham that he would have many offspring. He promises all of his people that he will be their God and they will be his own people. And then he adopts us into his family. And we have the right to become children of God with all the rights and privileges associated with being in the family of God. How does this happen? If we're all born into iniquity, if we're all dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, if we are all by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, how can this happen? How can we possibly avoid the wrath of God? Humanly, John tells us, we must believe in his name. We must receive him. But right next to our responsibility to believe and receive is God's work. God's work of changing the heart, of regenerating the soul. You're born of God. To believe in his name is to identify with Jesus as the center of life. To receive and believe means not only do you believe in Jesus, but you trust in him. You trust in his character. You focus your whole life on this new reality, this light. So I'll conclude with this question. So who will believe? Will all who hear the message believe? Will all who 
who have the sun shining on them, open their eyes and see the light and receive it? Jesus says there will only be a few. Matthew 7, 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. That doesn't sound like something that televangelists preach on very much. It's the easiest thing in the world to come to Christ. It's the easiest thing in the world to be a Christian. You don't have to count the cost. Jesus isn't talking about your salvation. This narrow gate is actually a wide gate and you can easily come to him. The reality is it's a narrow gate and the way is hard that leads to life and few are those who find it. So who are those then that find the light? Are they the smartest people among us? Do you find the light because you're just a little more clever than the next one? Are they the most knowledgeable people who find the light? You just know the Bible so well that you see the light for sure. Are they the most powerful or wealthy people? Are they the people with the most faithful and pure church bloodline? The most outwardly faithful people. All those things could be part of it. But no, they're the people born of God. That's the key distinctive of all God's people is you are born of God. You're like children. In all of your humility, a child is the greatest. If, if you are like a child, you're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. Why is that? Because they're completely dependent upon their father. They acknowledge in humility that everything they need has to come from their father. So the only ones who are given the right to become children of God are those not born of blood, not into the right family. It's not hereditary. It's not, oh, I'm Jewish, so now I'm a child of God. I'm a blood descendant of Abraham. Now I'm a child of God. He says, no, that's not it. Nor those born of the will of the flesh. In other words, your mind is not smart enough to figure it out and to make this good decision for God. You're not born again because you're born of your own, your own will, your own decisions. Thirdly, you're not born of the will of man. It's not the persuasive power of a pastor or a parent that convinces you of the goodness of this gospel. It's from God. You're born of God. Colossians 1.13, Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. In John 3, he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. The Spirit blows where it may. No one sees where it's going or where it's come. You must be born again. This is a work of the Spirit. It's a new birth. It's not that someone has a desire and inclination to God apart from the work of the Spirit. You must be born again to even see the kingdom of God. So God sent a witness of the truth, but the truth was rejected. And God still calls his people to himself. You must today have faith in Jesus Christ and repent and believe and receive Jesus. You say, well, you just told me this is something that God does. 
How can I do that at all? If you have a desire to believe and receive in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is working. Pray for the faith to believe in His name and to receive Him, to honor Him, maybe for the first time this morning, as your Savior and your Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank You for this opportunity that we have this morning to study Your Word. We pray that the Word of God would be living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, that it would divide between joints and marrow, all the way into our hearts, that we would receive Jesus Christ, that we would believe in His name, that everyone within the sound of my voice would trust in Christ alone. He is our only hope. He is our only Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We pray this in Jesus' name.